Well, as Chad mentioned, we are continuing in our, in our series on the early acts. We're looking at the very beginning of the Christian church. Last week, we heard Peter's first sermon, which was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we're told that the people, when they heard the word of God, they were cut to the heart. And after this cutting, they ask, what should we do? And Peter tells them to repent and to be baptized and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the spirit of God, which came upon the apostles at Pentecost and which is the gift to every new believer from God, including you and me. And in the passage we'll be looking at today, we are looking at what these new believers did, what, what were the steps they took once they first received this gift of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know if you're a Christian yet, but when you receive the Holy Spirit, it changes you. It, it changes your perspective on things. Um, it, it changes the lens through which you view the world. Things look different. Um, and, and of course, we're still on her, here on earth, so we'll still relapse and we'll still kind of go back into old habits and, and human selfishness, but, but it really does change you. Um, I'd gone to Catholic school up until the fifth grade back when I lived in Pittsburgh, and I always thought religion was interesting. I suppose I was kind of fascinated by the mysticism that accompanies the Catholic religion and to be, to, uh, uh, just to be clear, I love Catholics. My, my grandparents were Catholics and they were two of the finest Christians I've ever met in my life. But there is a, a bit of mystery around Catholic liturgy that I remember from my youth. And one of those mysteries was called transubstantiation. This is the Catholic belief that, that, that the, the juice and the bread are turned to the literal body and blood of Christ when we do communion. And I was so fascinated by this mystery that, that I decided that I was gonna try to recreate the sacrament of transubstantiation in my room as a third grader. Um, and so I got a loaf of Wonder Bread and some grape juice and I went up to my room where I had this beautifully thick cream colored carpet and I held up the bread and I, and I did what I saw the priest do at mass. I held it up and I blessed it and I sang the liturgy through him, with him, in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit. All honor and glory and power yours, almighty Father, forever and ever. Amen. Yeah, what do you do? Yeah, so, so I did that and, um, and then, uh, and if you think that's a lot for a third grader to remember, just keep in mind that we had mass twice a week plus more on holidays. So it was in there. It is still in there forever. Um, so then I took the juice and I held it up, but before I could sing the liturgy, I lost control of the juice and the very purple juice spilled all over my very white carpet. And then my mom heard the noise and she came running up the steps and she like comes in and she takes in the scene and then she's like, Kaylee, why, why would you have grape juice on your white carpet? And I said, but mom, it's not grape juice. It's the blood of Christ. <laughs> I did not get in trouble. <laughs> that is the power of Jesus's blood. <laughs> That's right. I, so I was fascinated. I was fascinated by religion, right? But I, but I didn't really get it. I didn't get it. It was just interesting to me. It wasn't, it wasn't until my senior year of high school when I was led to faith by, by Mark and Tina Santum from, from Youth for Christ Campus Life. And I'd already made such terrible decisions with my body and my heart that by the time I was finishing high school, I was not really interested in religion any longer. And I'd probably heard about Jesus a hundred times in school, but, 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 but I hadn't yet been cut to the heart. Hadn't been cut to the heart. There, and there was nothing changed about me. And then there I was an unsuspecting senior at a camp in rural Pennsylvania hearing about the crucifixion for what felt like the first time in my life. And I promise you, they mentioned it a lot in Catholic school, but I, but I heard it for the first time. And, and when I heard it, I knew, I knew this is the best news that I'm ever gonna hear for the rest of my life. I was changed, changes you. 
If you have your Bibles with you, we're gonna be looking at Acts chapter two, beginning in verse 42. It's also in your bulletin if you wanna just read along as I read. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is God's word. Tim Keller does a sermon on this passage. It's much better than mine. You should listen to it. And he points out in that sermon um, this one thing that really struck me. He said, you know, these first Christians, they, they didn't have to be talked into going to church. No one had to compel them to go to church. No one guilted them into it on Christmas and Easter when they all show up and they're like, are you here the rest of the year? You know, like no one had to do that to them. They didn't have to check up on them to make sure they were breaking bread and praying. These, these people, when, when they received the Holy Spirit, these, these people came alive. They came alive, and, and, and these actions that are cataloged in this paragraph, these are, these are just the signs of life. Like when a baby is born, the baby cries. The, the crying is a sign of life. You don't have to teach the baby how to cry. If the baby is alive, the baby cries, and so it is with new life in the Holy Spirit. The, the, the signs of life are present when the life is present, and so it is with our lives as Christians. And so this, of course, begs the question, are these signs of life present in our church today? And if not, why not? But, but perhaps more importantly, how can we come alive again? How do we come alive again? So let's start by looking at the signs of life themselves. First, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Do you know anyone who's into the Enneagram right now? <laughs> of course you do, of course you do, because everyone is. Um, and, and I'm not bashing the Enneagram, it's really helpful. We used it as a tool for a retreat that we did for our, um, for our Hernan staff last week, and it was just really excellent. Um, but people are like super into it, right? They're really into it, and it's, it's, there's the book, but there's also the podcast, and then you can pay like $120 to get a 42-page report about your numbers and your wings and all this stuff. I, I used to have normal conversations with people, right, about normal human insights, but now I feel like like I can't have a conversation with someone and I go, well, that's just your six coming out and that triggers my eight and I'm a one with a two. Oh my gosh, like I don't want to hear about your wings anymore unless they're covered in barbecue sauce and 10 cents each, okay? <laughs> like it's just, it's, it's everywhere. And, and again, the material's great, but it's just ubiquitous. Some folks seem to only talk about that right now. It's, it, they're, they're devoted to it. It's like when Lost first came out in the early 2000s. You know, people were, they just, they lost track of everything, like day of the week, names of their children. They were devoted to it. It's all they could think about. Being devoted to something means that you have a singularity of mind. The thing that you're devoted to, it, it takes, takes priority over all your other needs and desires, and the first believers were devoted to the apostles' teaching. One of the, I think one of the hardest things about our current moment in history is that we live in a post-truth culture. We live in a post-truth culture. There are people, uh, so maybe even some of us, who don't actually believe that there is such a thing as absolute truth. We hear that phrase, you know, well, that's, that's your truth, this is my truth. But, but all that really means, all, all that really means is that I, I've decided that the way that I feel or the things that I think are the truest things about this world. Guys, that's a terrible strategy. I mean, first and foremost, because thoughts and feelings change. Right, oh, they change. I mean, there was a time in my life when I thought I could never be happy unless I married David Duchovny from the X-Files. Not true, 
he's my dad's age, you know? I thought that the only job that would ever make me happy would be to be a veterinarian by day and a crime-fighting ninja by night. Also not true. Would have been awesome, <laughs> but, but not true. Not the only job that would make me happy. It's not absolute truth. Thoughts and feelings. Have you ever prayed for something, maybe a relationship, that you really, really wanted to work out and you prayed for it, but then it didn't work out? But then one, two, five years later, you look back and you thank God that it didn't work out? because then someone just posted you know, a Facebook video of your old crush, Troy, from college, and he's doing like a upside down beer bong, and, and, and only now in the video he's 42 and he lives with his mom. <laughs> Thank goodness that didn't work out. Who here has a tattoo? Because when you got it, you thought, I really will love Roadrunner this much for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, th- thoughts and feelings change, they're not absolute, they're not reliable enough to be absolute. Tim Keller says in his sermon that, that we can only be cut by things that are harder than we are. The first believers, they were cut to the heart by the gospel because it was harder, it was more real, it was more absolute than anything else that they had or would ever encounter. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It was their absolute truth. They judged all other wisdom and knowledge by the light of that truth. Do we have that? Do we have it? Because I, I feel like as a church, as a culture, we are losing that. I mean, even in the church, is the word of God our absolute truth? Is it really? Guys, we, we all have to decide. At some point, we all have to decide what our anchor is going to be. What is the absolute truth by which we judge all other truths? What will we tether ourselves to? In other words, what will be our center We all, we need a center. We need a center of gravity. We need a center or else we're just gonna keep moving from truth to truth until everything seems relative or everything seems meaningless. We'll flounder. In 1633, the the physicist Galileo was ordered to turn himself into the authorities for holding the belief that the earth revolves around the sun, which of course it does. But at that time, the church adhered dogmatically to this belief that, that the earth was the center of the universe. After his trial, they wrote in in Galileo's sentencing, we pronounce, judge, and declare that you, the said Galileo, have rendered yourself vehemently suspected by this holy office of heresy, that is of having believed and held the doctrine which is false and contrary to the holy and divine scriptures, that the sun is the center of the world and that the earth is not the center of the world. We order that by a public edict, the book of Dialogues of Galileo Galilei be prohibited and we condemn thee to prison and enjoin on thee that for the space of three years, thou shalt recite once a week the seven penitential psalms. Incidentally, the seven penitential psalms are mostly ones asking God's forgiveness, only Galileo hadn't done anything wrong. He actually was telling the truth, so it's ridiculous. It's like the 17th century version of Harry Potter writing, I must not tell lies a thousand times for Dolores Umbridge. And then there's... Ptolemy, or Ptolemy, if you can't pronounce silent letters, and, um, and he had a system that put, that put the earth at the center of the universe. And, and he was able with his system to, to calculate planetary positions, but with errors up to as much as 30 degrees, which on a cosmic scale is a lot, okay? It's like at least 50 miles, right? It's a physics joke, come on guys, work with me, work with me. So, so he, invented, he invented this thing called the equant, which was like this, this factor you added into the calculations, but the equant was different for each of the planets. And so, so it helped. It, he, he, could, he could get to the calculations, but you really had to do a lot of complicated extra work to get the conclusion you wanted. 
It was logical gymnastics. It was, it was bad math. When we, as people, orient ourselves, our, our lives, our thoughts, our moral decisions, the affections of our hearts, when we orient ourselves around a false center, we will end up way off course. We will. If we refuse to accept the true center, then, then, then we'll have to do moral gymnastics in order to, to come to the conclusions we wish were true. We will have to invent dubious justifications to appease our own conscience that, that essentially amounts to bad math. It's no good. It's not good for us, it's not good for other people to believe that, that, that what we feel and what we think is more centered than God. If, if we do that, we all become the center of our own universe, like a bunch of little gods with only one worshiper, and it, it divides us. It makes it impossible for us to be in community with one another. It, it ruins our community. It's no good to believe that the world revolves around me and everyone else is just caught up in my gravity. You can't be a community that way. At best, you can, you can only be a group of individuals that are standing close together. But when, when Christ is our center, when, when the most important thing about us is him, when we orient ourselves around the true center, then, then we cannot help but discover that we are all held together by the same gravity, by the gravity of his grace. It is by him and in him that all of us and each of us are held together. That's the thing about being devoted to the apostles' teaching. It's you can't have it both ways. You can't be devoted to the word of God, but also to the word of culture or the word of emotions or the word of happiness. That's not devotion. It's, it's, it's assimilation at best. And here's the thing. God is not giving us the truth so that we can simply consider it. If we don't obey the wisdom and the insight that he offers us, then, then he may stop offering it at some point, or, or it will just get harder and harder to discern that wisdom and insight from the voice of our own desires until one day maybe we can no longer tell the difference. Listen, the truth will always be absolute, no matter how we feel about it, but we still have to choose to be devoted to it every day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It was a sign of life. Next, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Well, what's fellowship? Even if we all agree on the truth, even if we are all uh, agreed, even if we are all devoted to the truth together, we will still disagree on how to apply that truth. And that's on a good day. For example, my husband and I, we both agree that it's true that my mother is an excellent grandmother and, and she, we want her to have a strong relationship with our daughter, Ember. But how do we apply that truth? For me, obviously, my mom should move in with us, obviously, you know? But for Rob, obviously, we should send Ember to my mom's house for one week every summer. Same truth, right? Very, very different application. And that's, again, that's on a good day. On a bad day, we won't even agree on the truth. Or maybe we do, but I'm just gonna ignore it because I'm not ready to start doing what I should and stop doing what I shouldn't. But in Christian community, in Christian community here, we, we, whether we agree on what the truth is, whether we disagree or whether we ignoring what the truth is, we still have to live with each other. And not only that, we have to live with each other in such a way that makes us attractive to the rest of the world. Remember, remember our mission from, from the Minor Prophets series, the, the mission of, of God's people Israel that was given to us by Jesus Christ. We, our mission is to live lives so full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, that the rest of the world, they look at us and they wanna know the God we live that way for. 
That's how we complete our mission. That's how we invite all people into the love and truth of Jesus Christ, by our love, by our kindness, by our ability to be good to one another, even when we're hurt by one another. To be good to one another, even when that person doesn't deserve our love, we still have to live with each other. And we have to live in in a way that actually makes other people want to be a part of this community. How on earth is that even possible? My husband and I went to a wedding in Georgia a few years ago. Um, We had been married about two years at the time. and, And our friends who were getting married, they had written their own wedding vows. And their vows were really setting the bar rather high. Um, They said things like, uh, I promise to always put your needs in front of mine. And I promise to never speak words of anger to you even when you hurt me. So so by the last vow, which was something like, you know, I, I promise to always make room for your hobbies even if they take away all the time and money for mine. I look over and Rob is like red in the face and I am too. We are barely suppressing our laughter because, because oh my gosh, that that's very high. I mean, they, they might have... Might as well have said, you know, I promise never to leave dirty dishes in the sink. I promise always to put the seat down, et cetera. And, and to be fair, you know, they're, they're such great people that they, there's a possibility they're still living up to those vows this very day. But we are not marriage experts by any stretch. Um, well, Rob might be. I'm, I'm a train wreck. We have a five-year-old. I actually get mad at Rob when he gets sick, you know? Like, it's hard enough just to live up to that in sickness and in health bit. When he gets sick, I'm like, how dare you? How dare you get sick on a day that you're responsible for morning drop-off? How could you do that? He's lucky if I push him a bowl of soup under the door and a hazmat suit. It's every man for himself. I quarantine that biz. It's hard, it's hard. It's hard to live up to our vows. And, and, and sometimes we fail at them. Sometimes we fail at our vows. But here's the, here's the important part. This is the point. Even when we fail at our vows, that doesn't make us any less married. We're still married. Even if you're a crap spouse, you're still married, right? That's what it's like to be in fellowship with other Christians. You are, you are, present tense, brothers and sisters in Christ. It is not an ideal to make happen. It is a reality that already exists. In other words, you already married the other Christians. We were already unified by the spirit of Christ. We, we don't get to pick and choose which Christians we're gonna be unified with. We already took the vows when we accepted Jesus. This is our condition, present tense. We've already been married to our bridegroom. We're united in the body, but we still do the work every day of being faithful. You understand? We're, we're, we're already unified. It's already happened, but it's up to us to start acting like it. And guys, we, we must. We must, or else we're not gonna be any good to God or to the people that he's given us to love. This is what it means to be in fellowship. And yes, it does cost us something. In his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. That dismisses once and for all every clamorous desire for something more. One who wants more than what Christ has established does not want Christian brotherhood. He is looking for some extraordinary social experience, which he has not found elsewhere. He is bringing muddled and impure desires into Christian brotherhood. The danger of confusing Christian brotherhood with some wishful idea of religious fellowship. He who loves his dream of a community more than the community itself has become a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. You ever meet those people in church who are like really hard to love and you think to yourself, man, I hope they find a good small group. 
spoiler alert, you should invite them into your small group. You can't unhear it now, I'm sorry. And, and yes, it will change the dynamic. It will cost you something, but, but if we don't, if we refuse fellowship to anyone who is hard to fellowship with, guys, what are we doing? What are we doing? We're, we're just hanging out with friends. We're just hanging out with friends. You know, we talk a lot about community, not just here at Summit, but, but it's rather fashionable right now to talk about community. Everyone wants to be a part of a community. They want to support their community. They want to do things in community. And, and none of those are bad things, right? Some of those are very, very good things. However, community in and of itself is not the goal that we are aiming for. The goal is to love God with all our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's the goal, Community is a, is a part of the way that we achieve that goal, but community even in and of itself is not the goal because community isn't intrinsically good. People form communities around all kinds of things. Certainly they can have church communities, they can have recovery communities, they can form communities around foster youth and, and helping parents and all that stuff, and those are, those are all very good, but people can also form communities around drugs and alcohol. They can form communities around bullying, they can form communities around racial prejudice and hate. Community is a non-moral entity. What that community is about is what makes it good or bad. And so, you know, while we talk about a lot, a community a lot, let's not get the wrong idea because I don't want us to go patting ourselves on the back because we're so connected in community. If, if, if in fact those communities are centered around socioeconomics and, and common hobbies and political persuasions, in fact, Communities centered around these things can actually be more divisive to the church than they are unifying. That's not the kind of community that we're called to pursue. If we, if we expect Christian community to, to just be this easy, intuitive, spiritually and emotionally fulfilling thing, guys, we're never gonna stick it out. We're never gonna stick it out long enough to be any good to our community and for them to be any good to us. And we will be just as Bonhoeffer warns, people who love, uh, love our dream of community more than the, communi the Christian community itself. I mean, let's not forget that we've been included in God's community, even though we are so hard to love that it actually killed him. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. These are the first two signs of life. Then they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. This is the third sign of life, the breaking of bread. This is what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. And I think it's really no accident that, that communion would follow uh, a devotion to the truth, which reveals our sin, and, 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 a, and a devotion to fellowship with people that are hard to love. Because when we've, when we've been cut to the heart by truth, which exposes how ugly we are, and when we've, uh, when we've been forced to live with and, and live with in joy and unity, people who we sometimes want to slap in the face with a catfish, in order to do that, in order to do those things well, we have to experience the grace of humility. We have to remember that we're not that awesome in, 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 to begin with. We have to face who we are in order to live with who they are and, and, and know that they struggle to live with us also. And communion, by its very design, reminds us that we all stand equal at the foot of the cross. Because what is it? What, what does it mean? What does it mean that we drink the blood and we eat the body of Christ? It means that we can't make it. That we could never have made it. If his blood was not shed for us, if his body was not broken for us, and if we didn't receive him into ourselves. 
And no matter how much better we might be than our neighbor, although it would be very foolish to believe that, no matter how, but even if it were true, no matter how much, if we were infinitely better than our neighbor, even if we were, all of our goodness is still so insufficient for the salvation of our souls that, that the Bible actually calls our good deeds dirty rags before the holiness of God. Guys, we, we all need the grape juice and the wonder bread in order to be alive. And so as we understand this truth, as we seek the forgiveness of our sins, as we seek to have our eyes opened to our own sinfulness and to bear with the sins of our brothers, we come naturally to the final sign of life that we're gonna discuss today. They devoted themselves to prayer. Jesus reminds us in the Gospel of John, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. How much do you pray? I mean, honestly, like how much do you pray? Think about it. And, and when do you pray? Because I find that I often use prayer as like a call to an ambulance, like the damage has already been done and I'm just hoping God will swoop in and save me. When I first came through Regroup, our recovery ministry as a participant, uh, I, I was so excited that I'd been able to make these positive changes that I became like really into mastering my appetites for a period of time. So uh, mostly just because I was like, I can, I'm, I'm capable of doing this. So I decided that I was gonna try a week long water fast. And in retrospect, I had no business doing it because one, I was doing it for all the wrong reasons. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't like pursuing God to sustain me. I wasn't asking for help in a challenging season of life. I wasn't lamenting of my sin. I wasn't even for the most part praying during my fast. I was just fasting most basically to, to prove that I could and to feel more disciplined than the people around me. So I start this water fast and, and I observed all of Jesus's rules for the fast. I didn't tell anybody. I washed my face and I anointed my head with oil, AKA put on makeup so no one would know until day three when, when I learned the hard lesson that a portion of the water that we get every day comes from the food we eat and I was not making up the gap. And so I woke up that morning so sick, so physically ill that I couldn't hold anything down, not a cracker, not a teaspoon of water. So I called Rob, who I was dating at the time, and I informed him that I was gonna die. And um, he, he's always the hero, so he's like, I'll be there in five or 10 minutes, which is funny, because he lived 25 minutes away at least. Um, so he picked me up, and, and he picks me up, and I have this bucket that I'm just clinging to, like a cat on a pool raft, and I won't let go of it. Uh, and we get to the hospital, and they, and they put me in a wheelchair with my bucket, right? This isn't even the most embarrassing part of the story yet. So they wheel me into a room and a doctor begins to ask me questions. And he's like, so what, what seems to be the problem, Kaylee? And I was like, well, I, in my bucket, I've been fasting for the last three days. And he's like, okay, and why were you fasting? And what I should have said was, well, you see, doctor, I came to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. As, a, as an act of devotion to glorify his name, I decided to forego food for several days in order to better experience the gift of his presence. But no, that's not what I said, because I was a mess. So mostly into the bucket, what I managed to, to mutter out in my writhing was, for religious purposes... I told you before, I am the reason that people think Christians are weird. It's me, it's my fault. They put two bags of IV fluids in me before I even regained the ability to produce tears. And the doctor says, is there any chance that you're pregnant? And I say into my bucket, no, no, there's no chance that I'm pregnant. And he says, listen, we get a lot of women coming in here feeling sick, swearing up and down, they're not pregnant and they find out they're pregnant. And I'm just so irritated and so empty and so just upset that I finally snap at this guy and, I'm yell, and I yell, well, do you have a lot of women come in here and say they're not having sex, doctor, because that's where we are. And he looks at me and he's like, we're gonna give you the test just in case. <laughs> he was not convinced. I was a mess because I was 
empty. I had nothing in me, no food, barely any water. And and in addition to that, I wasn't connecting with the one form of sustenance that fasting is supposed to highlight. Fasting isn't just about giving up food, it's about receiving nourishment from another source. And I wasn't connected to that source, so I just slowly ran out of nourishment. And so what came out of me was, of course, hollow and rotten and sick. Devotion to a truth that reveals our inadequacy, fellowship with people who are hard to love, communion which constantly reminds us of our sin, these efforts drain us of our nourishment. We won't make it unless we are connected to the vine that gives us more. That's what prayer is. It's all it is. It's, it's a relationship that keeps us tethered to Jesus so that he can nourish us and refresh our soul. And when we, when we try to do this on our own, when we make these efforts without that connection, I would submit to you that what we're really trying to do is to, is to squeeze a fruit out of a wasting branch. You know, we may work hard to the peak of capacity with the utmost sincerity, with the greatest resolve, and yet all we're gonna get is a prune and then a raisin and then nothing at all. Without that connection to the vine, despite our best intentions, we're just squeezing fruit out of a dead branch and that is hard work indeed. Prayer is a sign of life in the spirit. Without it, we can live, but, but we're, we, we can be alive, but we can't really live. There's so much more in this passage that, that we're not gonna have time to get to today. As a result of these devotions, they were filled with awe. They, hold, they held all things in common. They sold their possessions to give to the poor and needy. That's what's happening. That's what happens when we love God and when we love our neighbors because it's impossible for us to love God and ignore the people made in his image. These were the signs of life in the first church. Are they with us? Do we have these signs of life? And if not, why not? But more importantly, how do we come alive again? How do we come alive again? I have a very simple application for you guys, and I don't want you to discount it just because it's simple. I think some of the, some of the most spiritual work we do is often the simplest, and I, and I want you to do it. So I, I would suggest that in order to come alive again, that we start where these first believers did, which is being cut to the heart by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this week, I just want you to do something very simple. I want you to read Peter's address in Acts 2 every day and, and, and everywhere that it says fellow Israelites, I want you to drop your name in there instead. And I, and I want you to try to be present I think we're so familiar sometimes with these stories in the Bible that we're not really present when we read them. Be present with it. Drop your name in, be present. Try to be present with God and with the story that you're reading. And then pray that God would cut you to the heart. Pray that you would be filled anew with his Holy Spirit, that it would, that it would just enter you and be so abundant in you. Because here's the thing, it is, it is the new life in the Holy Spirit that both empowers and sustains these efforts of the first church. We, we can do the things, right? We can be in community, we can pray, we can break bread together, we can do all those things. But if we're not connected to the spirit of God, we're gonna burn out. We're gonna do them until we just can't do them anymore. But when we're connected, when we're connected, we, we can't stop the fruit from growing. Without the spirit, we're just squeezing fruit out of a dead branch. But with the spirit, we can't stop the fruit from coming out of us. So I want you to do that this week. In a few minutes, we're gonna be taking communion. 
the communion table, uh, you know, it's if you've done communion before, it's kind of somber and, you know, people come up and they're very kind of alone with themselves. But but I want to remind us, the communion table is, is personal, but it is not private. I, I want you to imagine it stretching out across this church to the other churches that are meeting this morning. I want you to imagine it stretching out to your, to your brothers and sisters, to your parents, to your kids. Um, I, I want you to imagine it stretching across time to the kids who have not been born yet, to your grandchildren who have not yet arrived, backward to your late grandmother. I want you to imagine us all coming to the communion table together because the communion table shouldn't be the time that we are most alone with God. It should be the time when we are most connected to one another by the great equalizing power of his grace. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you again that you have already done the work that we're incapable of. You've already done the work of connecting us and unifying us as the body of Christ in a way that we could never do on our own. Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace to be able to to recognize our own faults and flaws, to repent of our sins and to be joined with one another, to behave according to who we actually are, to be the people that you've made us to be. So Lord, be with each of us this week. Allow us to open our eyes to who we are. Allow us to bear with one another in grace and love. Allow us to be the kind of community that other people look at and they wish they were a part of it. And then let us help them become a part of it. Lord, be near to us. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen.